0: Welcome to the Daily Standard podcast. It is October nineteenth, two thousand eighteen. I'm Charlie Sykes, and on Fridays uh, we have a cross-platform conversations, and we're joined by Scott Bland, who is the editor of the. I mean, you have to pay for this, right? The Politico Pro. I mean, you are the pro. You're you're like the Politico <laughs> on yeah,
1: like, it's steroids. A, it's, yeah, it's campaign pro. So it's you know all the all the like super in depth uh, nerdy. Uh, nerdy politics stuff, oh, you uh, come
0: to the right place. you, you really have <laughs> you you actually have a podcast called the nerdcast that
1: that's that's correct. yeah, we just uh, we just finished up recording this week's episode, actually. And uh, okay,
0: so we we had a, we had it we had a nerdy cast yesterday where we we <laughs> talked about the the Senate races. And uh, I want to talk about uh, the the House races. We are now eighteen days before the midterm elections. So, Scott, you know, one one of the things that really strikes me is how radically different the narratives seem to be uh, between the Senate races, where Republicans seem to be turning the corner a little bit, and the House races, which again, you know, totally different battlefield. But give me your take on on where we're at here um, on 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 the House races. It's it's so much more difficult to talk about the House races because there are so many of them. And the conditions are so localized. So I always have this suspicion that that 90 percent of the conventional wisdom and the talking heads just have really no idea what they're talking about.
1: Uh, yeah, I think no, I think that suspicion is, is uh, pretty warranted. Um, the House, I mean, that, that's the thing that makes it fun with the House, too, though, that there's so many different personalities and places uh, to dig into and um, and you know that's that's the challenge for us finding places and events that are representative of kind of a broader story, right? Um, as as we try and cover it, but the point you made about the two different maps is just it's right on. It's like the Senate map, it, it, it's like the it's like the House special elections uh, mm-hmm. of the last year and a half. The Senate map is basically taking place in like a House special election landscape, in these super Republican. Uh, Red tinted areas that nevertheless have these kind of resilient Democrats who you know have been elected and in some cases re-elected before, despite all this. In the House, we've got a whole mishmash of of uh, districts going on. You've got a suburban Clinton districts that voted for Romney in 2012. You've got you know exurban and rural. Trump district that voted for Obama in 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 12 and kind of everything in between. Um, and I, the the way I see it all adding up at this point is that you know Democrats are kind of creeping toward that magic number of 23 flips that they need to net in order to get uh, control of the House back. But but they're not there yet, and there's there's a lot of kind of you know difficult terrain in front of them, and a lot of surprises probably if if the last three weeks of the election are anything like the the three weeks before that, or the three months before that, or the, the which year they're likely that. to
0: be, right? I mean, yeah.
1: that's that's the deal. So, is it the
0: the all all of the talk about a wave? Um, are we still talking about a wave, or are we talking about sort of a mild tropical depression, <laughs>
1: um, or you a
0: know, cyclone, or what? It
1: it, it depends. A, a wave is such a a, a qualitative. Um, you know, su- subjective term. Right? It's like, I, I feel like a lot of people don't even mean the same things when they're talking about a wave. Forty, they, the, fifty,
0: sixty seats.
1: Yeah, I mean that that's that's going to be tough. That's going to yeah. be tough. Um, I I I do think takeover is more likely than not at this point. But there's so there's so many variables and. And you know, a lot of these districts, to the extent that things move over the next three weeks, a lot of the districts are going to move together, right? You've got national environmental stuff going on, but there there are also different places, and there's there's different stuff going on and different candidates at play. And so some districts are going to be moving hard left, and some are going to be moving to the right, and it's it's uh, it's it's tricky to figure out. But uh, you know, I, I I do think a wave is still possible. And one of the things that we've learned over the last decade of watching elections is basically that the side. Um, the the side that ends up losing the election, it seems like everything goes really wrong right at the end, right? Like yeah, there's no, big, <laughs> there's break, no kinda...
0: big, big break that you didn't necessarily see coming a, a month earlier.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, if things progress in the direction they've been progressing, and then it, it just kind of like kicks up another three three notches for for Democrats, then I think you could start getting into like forty seat territory. But but who knows. Uh, we're, we're in a situation where people are already like more on both sides are already more engaged and amped up than they usually would be for a midterm election. So how much room is there really to, uh, for something like that to happen? I don't know.
0: Well, let's talk about money because I know you're, uh, you're, you're into campaign money. We found out this yeah. week that, uh, that house democratic candidates had raised a stunning $1 billion for this particular cycle, which is really impressive for a party out of power, but um, are, are we in an era in which money is overrated?
1: Well, I think it's. I tricky throw that with, out as
0: a provocative comment.
1: You know? It's <laughs> it's tricky. It's tricky with the House. I think you can overrate it, right? And we've certainly learned that money's not determinative, right? We saw that with John Ossoff in mm-hmm. the 2017 special election. That was the most expensive House race ever, largely because he was raising a gazillion dollars via small donors, and he still lost, right? So we know it's not determinative. I I do think that it it does play some role and we can see, you know, we were digging into the new numbers this week at Politico and one of the things we found, there are 33 house Republican incumbents who trail their opponents in cash on hand at the end of the third quarter. And that's, so they have less money to spend for the last five, six weeks. And in the last decade of elections, two thirds of the incumbents in both parties who have found themselves in that position had lost. Mm. So, so that's, that's been kind of a pretty dire historical indicator, right? Um, now, it's it's a little different this time, just because there's so there's so much money, uh, flowing around, and and you know a lot of these Republican incumbents who were outraised still raised personal personal record amounts themselves, so every everyone's got enough to run, to run viable campaigns.
0: And that's the key think, word, right? Enough. Yes. Exactly. I don't need to raise more than the other guy. I need to raise enough.
1: Exactly. I think where you might see it make a difference is in some races, kind of on the edge of the of the battlefield. And, you know, again, especially if the environmental factors, other environmental factors are kind of pushing things one way or another on Election Day. But you could see, let's say, you know, that, that Democrats are leading by, what, eight, nine points on the generic ballot now. And let's say that that holds or or maybe pushes up a little bit on on Election Day. You could see um, uh, folks running in, in places where, uh, you know, they haven't been kind of at the center of the battlefield. The party committees or the super PACs haven't been paying much attention. But because of this wave of, of online fundraising and, and other stuff that's been powering these these Democratic uh, totals, you have a Democratic candidate who maybe for the first time ever in that district has been able to introduce themselves to voters, has been able to open a real field operation, the stuff that can move a race a few points, right? And when you roll that up with all the other factors of Democrats doing well generally in the election, so you know maybe that can push some people over the finish line in a few places. I think maybe that's where it starts to make a difference. The, uh, yeah,
0: the, 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 the question that I have, and I have a couple, I wanna talk about, uh, you know, turnout as well, but I'm always wondering about the generic ballot in a country that is as divided as we are right now. So the generic ballot is gonna pick up the districts where Democrats are gonna get 90% of the vote, they're gonna pick up the districts where Republicans are gonna get 70% of, of of the vote. In this particular race, a national generic ballot tells us what, considering that the fight for the control of the House of Representatives is going to be decided in um, you know a relatively small number of districts in places like you know Minnesota and california and and, and Pennsylvania, right? So mm-hmm. what why do we keep focusing on the generic ballot?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons we talk about it is because it's one of the best measures we have, right? And it you you can you don't want to be making hard, predictions or assumptions off that, but you can kind of look at it and say, okay, like in this range, this is about where, you know, seven, eight, nine points is about where Democrats would need it to be, to be able to gain 25 seats or so. Right. And and what they need to flip the house. You know, if it's around three or four, that's not in the range they need, given the gains they need to make in all these districts. One of the nice things about tracking the 2018 midterms is that because of this broad interest in the house of representatives and the battle to keep it for republicans to take it for democrats there's been a lot more district by district polling than we've ever seen before uh the, you know the new york times i think has polled something on the order of 45 districts uh, monmouth has been polling a bunch of districts and so we've got a lot more district by district data that we can sink our teeth into uh which which is great because the generic ballot can only tell you so much it can give you a sense of the national environment but Um, It really it really can't explain, especially given how Trump's presidency is scrambling the coalitions for both parties. It can't it can't give you that sense of, you know, which districts are more in play now than they ever were, which incumbents are still winning thanks to their personal brand versus those who whose personal brands have not been enough to withstand it anymore. That sort of stuff.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because of course, uh, you know, 2016 scrambled everything. We had a view of the universe. This is what the electorate looks like. This is what turnout models look like. And a lot of us had that view of the world completely blown up. So the question is. How fundamentally have the rules of politics you know shifted uh, in in a in an off-year election? You know, for example, I'm from the state of Wisconsin where we basically have two different electorates, a general election electorate which had tended until last time to vote democratic and an off-year electorate, which had tended to be much more favorable to Re- Republicans. So then the question is, how do you know at this point what the electorate is going to look like? I you know talk to a lot of Democrats, as I'm sure you do are saying well we're we're going to change the electorate we we're, we're, we're going to expand the electorate in ways that you have not seen in off year elections so h- how are you factoring in all of that in in, in, in these projections
1: it's tough <laughs> uh. um, it's one of those things that like uh, it just you know, it, it it makes me nervous it's it's really difficult to to think through properly and and get right i do i do think that for me, the, the best way to do it, I think is to, is to try and kind of go from the ground up instead of this big national look. Now we try and look at as many districts as possible and see, you know, what, what the campaigns are saying are, they're, they're looking at, you know, what the groups involved are saying, they're looking at public polling data, if we've got it and that, that sort of thing. And just try, try and get a sense, uh, from, from that of, you know, what we think we're going to see. Cause the, the, these are the folks who know the most about it, right? They're, they're, literally talking to people on the ground every day and also one of the nice innovations i think we've seen this this year is that the the a lot of the folks who are putting out these polls that i just mentioned they're not just putting out one number and saying this is this is what the polls show in in this district because there's all sorts of assumptions that underlie polls. They're assuming they know who's going to, who's going to vote, right? Which is this big question that we just learned. We don't know as much about as we thought. And, and so the folks like the, the times and Monmouth and others, they're, they're kind of putting out the range of scenarios, right? If, if turnout looks like this, here's what the results look like. If turnout looks like this, here's what the results look like. And I think that's been a very useful, um,
0: and the results are often very, very different based on that assumption.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. They can range as much as eight or 10 points. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and also, you know, by the, by the way, it, it, It uh, helps explain uh, why uh, campaign internal polling can sometimes look so different, right? When campaigns are leaking their numbers to try and shape the narrative of a race and Democrats say it's 10 points this way and Republicans say it's 10 Mm -hmm. points in the other direction because those assumptions are so powerful. And and this is giving us a nice look kind of through the looking glass on that of how just how powerful those assumptions are. And, and so, you know, you can take a look if you scroll through the New York Times polling page of here's what the results would look like if turnout looks like 2014. Here's if it was like 2016. Here's if you're just trusting people, whether they say they're going, they personally plan to vote or not and kind of modeling that out, which it turns out is actually not. Always the most reliable thing. Yeah. Um, people you, are not always great at at gauging their own likelihood of, of voting. So, so um, it, it's a it's a huge mess, basically, to to answer your question.
0: Yeah, that's one of those questions that that you just sort of assume that people lie about. You know, I mean, just or 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 or, or could could lie about. Now, now, this week, of course, was the week that Donald Trump said, you know, if uh, tells the AP that if Republicans lose the House, not his fault. Don't blame me. And yet, is there any other factor out there that, that is driving this, this thing other than the Trump presidency?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are some, but that's the big one, right? And, and one of the... I, I was actually just looking the other day at, at something I thought would be interesting. I wanted to look at, at poll respondents who said that they have a favorable, member, uh, a favorable impression pardon me, of their Republican member of Congress, but they disapprove of Trump. Right, and so it's mm-hmm. not—it's not a huge slice of the electorate, but these right. people are out there, and I, I was looking at those voters, and we kind of rolled them up over a whole bunch of different battleground polls, and essentially at this point they're splitting almost 50-50, and these are people who like their member of Congress, yeah. but don't like Trump, and they're split. It's not quite 50-50. It's—it's it's, yeah, I think 48-42 with a bunch of undecideds. And that's interesting. And that that's but that that's the election. Right. It's like these right, people right like there. their member of Congress. These people like their Republican member of Congress, but they, they're not the, as a group. They are not behind them. And and so it's hard to point election, to another factor.
0: Yeah. In a, so in a normal election, if I like my congressman, what should the percentage be of how I'm going to vote? Shouldn't it be what
1: 80? you would think? You would think huh. it would be pretty high. Unfortunately, yeah. I you know I, I, mm. I don't know the answer to that, right? Because we, we don't have historical data. On it. But I would think it would be higher than that.
0: Yeah, you would think it would be. High. So do you have some uh, races that are your personal favorites that you're watching, specific races on the ground?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, man. How long do we have? Yeah. <laughs> um, what you got? So, so a few that I think are really interesting are uh, uh, Republican Congressman Mike Kaufman's district in colorado Mm um this is the sixth district it's the suburbs outside denver it's you know aurora and and some surrounding communities very diverse district uh very uh, pretty highly educated Uh, and Kaufman is like the quintessential survivor in congress he's faced tough challenges in 2012 2014 2016 Won them all and And yet, <laughs> um, he he's been, I think, behind in pretty much every poll that's come out of of uh, that race. Uh, you know, still not a done deal, but but he's clearly he's clearly in trouble. and And I think if he does end up losing, that that demonstrates how that 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 race really demonstrates how things are shifting in some of these these suburbs that that used to be the Republican sweet spot and and are kind of shifting now as the Trump coalition, Puts a little more emphasis on on rural areas um i think that that's a really interesting one Um, give me
0: give me another one this is good some
1: some of the orange county races Mm. kind of along the same lines mimi walters Mm -hmm. i think is fascinating Mm -hmm. that's california's 45th district um orange county uh she this is not a district that was ever seen as a plausible battleground until donald trump was elected president and, um, and she's in, in the fight of her life, uh, against a, and again, Orange County, this is, you know, the, 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 the cradle arguably of the modern Republican party, or at least the 20th century Republican party. Um, and she's, uh, tied her trailing in a lot of polls to a, an Elizabeth Warren endorsed single payer healthcare in endorsing, uh, college professor uh, named Katie Porter, Mm. um who's running against her so that i mean that's that's just like that that's 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 crazy you know if you if you uh went to sleep in 2004 and and you know knowing orange <laughs> county politics and, you, and right. you woke up now like that, that that's crazy and yet um here we are
0: are, the, um, are there any democrats anywhere in the country that are uh, or how many democrats are are vulnerable to to lose their seats it it, it seems like it seems like republicans are on the defensive everywhere
1: yeah, pretty much. the the Democratic seats. There are a handful of Democratic seats that are um, up for grabs, uh, but they're places where where folks have retired, um, and uh, for the most part, um, I, there, there's one seat in in Pennsylvania. Uh, Congressman Matt Cartwright, whose district went for Trump in in 2016, and he's facing a bit of a challenge. It seems like he's coming through it okay, but um, some money has poured in there. But the the real ones to watch are in Minnesota, and there are right. two trump democratic districts in minnesota the the first district which is in the south side of the state and the, and the eighth district which is the the north uh, northeast part of the state um where you know if republicans are to keep the house um flipping those districts will be a big part of it uh, these are places trump won by double digits um democratic uh congressman retired uh, one of them is the the gubernatorial nominee that's tim walls out of the first mm-hmm. district and it seems like Democrats have more of a shot of potentially holding that. Um, but Congressman Rick Nolan, um, who's an interesting character, he was a, a Watergate baby and then kind of disappeared from public life for a while and then ran again in, in 2012 and is now retiring again. Um, and but but so he's he left that seat open and, and Republicans have the edge to flip that. And so that's, uh, um, you know, it's it's only a couple seats uh, and there's a cu- a couple in mm-hmm. Nevada that are are pretty close too that are also open seats. But those two Minnesota seats, you know, if if Republicans can pad their margin by by just a little bit, maybe the, that that could potentially have a big impact on election night. Are
0: are, are there some seats, and I, I have a couple in in mind here, uh, where where the the, the Democrats, you know, could have had a pickup, but maybe you're you know leaving it on the you know leaving it on the uh, leaving on the uh, on the, on the playing field. I'm thinking of uh, one that I read about. I think it was in Nebraska where. Uh, you had a vulnerable Republican, but the Democrats nominated somebody who is probably too left for the district. I'm thinking of uh, first congressional district in Wisconsin, where Republicans mm-hmm. uh, it could could have been a pickup uh, seat with Paul Ryan's seat when he when he retired. But uh, the nominee, Randy Bryce, is uh, I think going to underperform what what another uh, Democrat would do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a few uh, a few examples of that. Um, the, the there's been some polling in that Nebraska seat, right? And, and this is where uh, former Congressman Brad Ashford, the Democrat who lost to the current Republican congressman in 2016, and that's Don Bacon. Ashford was running for his old seat again. He lost his primary to, to Kara Eastman, um, who ran to his left. And Eastman is now trailing Bacon uh, pretty significantly in the polls. Uh, we've seen some, uh, some Republican money get pulled out there. Uh, out of there, you know. I, I think the group's figuring they they don't need to spend there to defend Bacon at this point. Um, I will, you know, going back to our our earlier conversation, we've definitely seen if if it does end up being a wave election, we've seen waves push push on ashore uh, all sorts of candidates who who you might not have expected. And so, if we do end up in that kind of scenario, um, you could see someone like that winning. But um, but indications at this point are that that yeah that that race is not as competitive as as they would have assumed. You know, if they were thinking, okay, we we're going to be in contention to take back the house, Nebraska two is going to be a part of that. Uh, but but it, it, it hasn't been. It's kind of faded off the landscape, and I, and I think be, because of that. To to more broadly speaking, though, I think like uh, de- Democrats were pretty, uh, pretty able to avoid nominating like. Totally unelectable candidates in in a lot of places. They're, they're in most places. There might be some where uh, they got people who have this strike or that strike against them, but with a, a few exceptions, and it's possible Nebraska is one of them. Um, the the folks they nominate in the battleground districts have a fighting chance.
0: Yeah, the the, the, the I mean, obviously, being from Wisconsin and watching the. Watching that first congressional district race, I I, I can't tell you how many times I had uh, discussions with uh, folks on MSNBC who had fallen in love with Randy Bryce. The Hollywood folks fell in love with him saying, you know, locally, it's going to look very, very different. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's uh, this is a much more complicated situation here. And, of course, that's part of the problem of nationalizing some of these races. And I'm thinking of that race, but also of the we've been talking about House races in the Senate race. Uh, in, 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 in Texas where, you know, Beto O'Rourke has become this, this massive national superstar, Mm -hmm. um, and he's clearly nationalized it, but there's a trade-off when you begin running as a national candidate versus a Texas Senate candidate. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously we don't know how that's going to play out here. Um, but, uh. If you if you play to the national audience, you know, I mean I, I, I'm I'm not I'm not sure you're gonna be taking the same position you would take if you were serious about winning a Texas election. And I I, I you may not want to go with me on this one, but, but is is Beto O'Rourke in line to be the most overhyped candidate of 20, 2018?
1: <laughs> um I I mean I, I think his chances of winning are are relatively slim, I guess, com- compared to Compared to the hype, so so from from that perspective, it, it's one of those things. It, it's uh, as as a as a member of the media, I, I kind of sympathize a little bit with the coverage he's got, because a lot of people are interested in this race, right? Like people want to know more about what's going on, and I think I think there's an element of that that is that is driving some of the coverage, not all the coverage. I agree that a lot of people have gone overboard on this, and there's been uh, some some hero worship of of him, a uh, bit yeah uh, but but I do think you know it, clearly clearly a lot of people are invested invested in him right and I mean that in the literal sense like the the amount of money he's raising is' uh, we're, you know it's bonkers um thirty eight million dollars in the third quarter i think and and it, so so pe- people there are a lot of people who want to know about him um at at the, at the same time it uh he He's not, you know, he's obviously, he's not leading the polls. He's not, if he did win, would it be the most surprising thing that's happened in the last two years? I don't think so. Um, that's a question it, I asked myself It would a lot. be pretty
0: remarkable. I mean, if he, it if he, if he, if he, if he wins down there, I mean, he's got to be on the short list for, for 2020 and, uh, I, I do think there's almost a little bit like looking past the game to to all of that, but but if but if he loses, uh, won't Democrats be doing a little bit of second guessing? You know, all of the attention that uh, was lavished on him, all of the money that might have gone to more competitive races. Although I don't know of many races that are that you would describe as uh, underfunded.
1: Right. I think that that that's the thing with with the money. Like I I honestly I. I think that to to the extent you know he he's not he's not raising this money from from donors who are who have because they've given to him they're not giving to others he he prompted these these donors to give to him I I, I don't think this is money that that I don't think that thirty eight million dollars was like available for someone to take and right, he, right you know what I mean And yeah, he no, kind of swept I, in and grabbed it
0: yeah one one just. <laughs> The thing that I'm, I'm I'm slightly obsessed with today is uh, is this story, and it's a little, maybe a little bit off topic. No, it's not. I was talking about the congressional races. Congressman Steve King from from Iowa is is in the is in the news again for uh, for some reason getting involved in Toronto mayoral politics by endorsing a white nationalist named Faith Goldie, who is. I mean when you say white nationalist maybe that's you know lost some of its 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 cachet because I mean she's she flirts with neo nazis she goes on the daily stormer she says the 14 words I mean this is not a close call and yet Steve King has been kind of a kingmaker in uh, in, in Iowa he's uh, he's been a leader of the sort of the extreme trumpian wing on 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 immigration and right before we started this podcast I was going around and looking at uh, how how this was uh, was playing in the media And maybe it's a sign of the times that this doesn't seem to be getting a lot of attention because I can remember an era, um, you know, back in 2006 or some of these other off-year elections where one bad actor becomes a national issue. You know, Mm -hmm. one bad, you know, behaving Republican congressman becomes a problem for Republicans all around the country. And I don't sense that that has happened yet. I do think that it's going to be a problem. But give me some sense about, you know, the, the Steve Kings of the world.
1: Yeah, I think they're, uh, well, I, I, I think part of it is that when when you've seen kind of one Republican bad actor become, or Democrat for that matter, become a problem for other members of their party in past elections, for the most part, I kind of, it tied together a, you know, a, a broader campaign narrative that, that the opposing party thought was useful. And so I'm thinking about 2006, right? You had scandal after scandal in, in the House, whether it's lobbyists or the congressional pages or um, what have you, and it just it kind of tied together this out-of-control narrative. In, in 2016, I feel like Repu- uh, Democrats tried to tie a lot of that stuff together with King and with others with Donald Trump and Trump's rhetoric about women and a whole bunch of other things, and it didn't work. Um, and I think that they're pretty gun shy about going down that road. That,
0: again. that That's interesting because I, I don't disagree with you here, but it shows how the window of acceptable behavior has now shifted. Yes. That, that that now, you know, a few years ago, y- you basically have a prominent Republican congressman who was engaging in this kind of rhetoric. It would have become a huge I- issue. But people are kind of like shrugging their shoulders now and saying, OK, well, you know, look, you know, after what Donald Trump said back in 2016, you know, about the Muslim ban and Mexican rapists and everything. And we tried that. It didn't work. We're not going to go down that road
1: anymore, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is really,
0: again, kind of a so, uh, you know, an indication of the way the norms of American politics have have shifted. Yeah. Um, in in Wisconsin, and I keep coming back to this because, it, you know, as, as, as we've been discussing, unless you've been on the ground or, or close to a race, I think it's hard to have a really you know solid opinion. I don't sense I don't know how you, you're looking at this from your point of view, but I don't sense that any of the congressional seats are going to flip. And I don't know that any of them are going to be close to flipping, including the the one district that would look on paper that would be the most vulnerable, which would be Glenn Grothman's district, mm-hmm. which includes some of the suburban Areas around uh, Milwaukee, but also uh, rural kind of uh, Trump country, and I I just don't sense and, and in and in that particular case the Democrats have uh, have recruited a quality candidate who is uh, who is well funded and running a very very good campaign, uh, but again guys like Glenn Grothman are just he's a very very good retail politician and so you have those sort of those X factors that that it's not just the way the, the, the electorate looks or the demographic looks, but but you actually have a politician who is a very, very, very good politician, who is running a very, very good campaign. And that actually matters. And what's interesting is that Glenn is extremely conservative and has gone, you know, much Trumpier than I would have <laughs> liked him to go. But the campaign he's running is kind of a kinder and gentler uh, Republican congressman who goes out of his way to help disabled people, does not mention, you know, is not you know, pounding on, on immigration, at least not the ads that, I, that I've heard. And he's one of these guys who is quite literally everywhere. And that's mm-hmm. one of the questions I always ask is, is this an incumbent who has become out of touch? You know, is out of touch with his district? Has become complacent? Has become lazy? And in you know, sometimes we're surprised by, you know, the the Dave Brats of the world when they come up and they 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 knock off, you know, a a sitting majority leader, and then people go, well, you know, he never actually campaigned. He got out of touch. That's not the case in this particular district in in Wisconsin.
1: Uh uh-huh. And it's it's interesting that you mentioned Brad. We were just talking about him on on the Nerdcast on our podcast a, a couple of weeks ago. As um, this is you know not someone who uh, certainly in the halls of Congress like has made any uh, attempt to to sand down the sharp edges, right? <laughs> um, but who in back in his district is running ads touting himself as this kind of postpartisan, uh, you know, so the the legislation about like protecting puppies from uh, from lab testing. And and stuff like that, you know, not not the the typical issues you'd think of, right? But they're they're clearly trying to um, trying that's to stand down that, some of those sharp edges. Well,
0: that's interesting, but that's exactly what's been going on with uh, with 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 growthman, and clearly right. that's that, that that's a strategy, and it uh, it strikes me as a relatively you know smart strategy because you you basically say, look, I've I've got the base, the base knows where I'm at, I'm they're going to stick with me here. Um, but I'm going to be the, you know, run the kinder, gentler uh, folks, uh, you know, and obviously that was not the way that Dave Brock got elected in the first place, right. was it?
1: <laughs> right. And so, you know, th- that, that way of kind of emphasizing things that are almost nonpartisan seems, seems very, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Where you run into difficulty is that there are a number of, of Republicans uh, trying to defend some of this, some t- suburban territory, especially where Trump is unpopular. And they, they have to figure out how to how to keep keep the base while convincing swing voters that they aren't Trump. And that can be a very delicate dance and you look, you know, th- there are a handful of members who have specifically called out Trump or said they oppose him on one or two policies in in their TV ads and that's a very dangerous game to play because you've got a lot of these districts and, like, some of the special elections, we saw, like, the special election in Ohio earlier this year, where you have this suburban core, but then a, a long tail of the district trailing out into more rural Trump country. And stitching together uh, your your kind of optimal coalition from both parts of, of those districts can—you you, you run the risk in trying to do both that you— that you alienate both of them, right?
0: Yeah, and and, uh, and, it, and it's very tricky because many members of the Trump coalition are uh, extremely intolerant of any dissent. And I was just thinking this is, you know, I, I was thinking of the, the uh, some social media explosions I've seen about Ben Sass. Now, Ben Sass has voted with Donald Trump, what, 90% of the time on every major piece of legislation, but he has absolutely detested uh, in Trump world, because he's willing to criticize the president, so you know, simply you know, voting on the right policies is not going to immunize you if you're perceived as being insufficiently loyal.
1: Right. And now, you know, the 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 trick for part of this can be, you know, I, you you can maybe try and even if you're if you are seen as insufficiently loyal, you might be able to grab some of those. People back by painting the your Democratic opponent as such a looney tune that that you know you couldn't possibly sit out the election for fear of. Well, uh, that is the strategy right winning.
0: now, right? Yeah, is is that you're not just running against a Democrat, you're running against a Democrat who hates America, who wants to flood the country with illegal immigrants and MS-13 gang members, um, and I mean that that is sort of the that is sort of the 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 entire playbook right now, which is that the other guy is just too scary and too risky, right? Yeah, you, you, you it's may not, not subtle. You may
1: not like <laughs> me, but this this
0: is this guy is really out there.
1: Yeah, it's uh, no, it's it's not subtle. It's um, that's 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 the game plan. Um, and you know, actually taking us back earlier to um, to what we were talking about about how money does and doesn't matter. Um, I think that this is an area where all that money that Democrats are raising affected the campaign in an interesting way. The Congressional Leadership Fund, the big uh, uh, Republican House super PAC, went up on TV very early in a lot of these districts trying to make a bet that it's like, hey, we can hit these Democratic candidates early and try and knock them out of the game and just make them unacceptable to voters. But because Democrats were raising all this money, they were able to kind of start their communication, whether on digital or TV or radio or whatever, they were able to get their message out earlier, too. And I think that helped blunt the impact of of those those early attack ads in some places, because th- these candidates were able to stand up and say, it's like, hey, look at me. I'm a no-, you know, I don't have another hand growing out uh, of my forehead or anything. I'm a normal human being. Right. Um, and and so which so is I, crucial,
0: I, which is crucial to be able to prove these days.
1: Right, right, exactly.
0: Very very, very, very handy. Scott Bland, thank you so much for joining me. Scott Bland is the editor of Campaign Pro for Politico, and apparently, you have to like know somebody to get this stuff. Like, is <laughs> you know, some in D.C. It's like, come on, can you give me, give me the the real stuff, the really the good stuff? I mean, isn't that what Campaign Pro is? You, 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 you have, this is the good stuff.
1: Yeah, well, you know what what we do, and <laughs> and and, and by, by 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 this point in the election cycle, I I, I think. Um, everyone's kind of keyed in on this, but we we try and starting back in 2017 try and and focus on the data points that we think are a matter to like people building up these campaigns. You know where where people are positioning themselves in primaries, who these candidates are, um, what kind of money they're raising. Following the money is a big big deal for us, and trying to kind of track that all the way through. And it just it's I um, it's an I, I think it's a really interesting way of. Of, uh, of looking at things and we get to kind of get this ground up perspective as opposed to kind of trying to have this like you know top of the watchtower view down um to try and figure out what's going on and how to make sense of it
0: well scott and, thank you
1: very
0: i appreciate it very much and thank you for listening to the daily standard podcast i'm charlie sykes we'll be back on monday we'll do this all over again